you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 5. And while you're finding that passage, 1 Samuel chapter 5, first just want to um, share my thankfulness, even this morning, the worship set, to be able to work through the five solas in that manner is such a, such a gift and blessing. And as we celebrate 22 years of a local expression of the Bride of Christ, uh, to know that those solas have been preached and taught faithfully here all those years is such a blessing. Um, every Friday morning in Weatherford at Grace Covenant Church, the men gather, uh, those who can make it out in the morning to pray. And it just so happened last Friday morning, one of our, one of our guys showed up with a, an older t-shirt on, and it had the year 2013, so it's pretty old, right? Um, and it got me thinking, and we started asking each other, what was going on in your life in 2013? And I, I promise this connects. Um, so just reflecting on my life, um, we had three out of four of our children. Uh, we were living and working at North Central Texas Academy as resident parents, and I was working towards finishing my MDiv at Southwestern. We had been attending uh, Grace Community Church, I think we started the end of 2010, so we were covenant members here, and during that year, 2013, the elders uh, approached me after allowing me to have opportunities to, to do some of my practicum work and uh, hands-on training through seminary, approached me with this life-altering proposal. They were inviting me in to be part of church planting here at Grace Community Church. Uh, we were going to be transitioning from resident parents to me coming on staff here in 2014 as uh, part of the staff. And that transition was life-altering for me. And so it is such a sweet time to be here, invited to proclaim God's word on the 22nd anniversary and on Reformation Day, all happening on the same day. And it's just much rejoicing from the bottom of my heart. And Grace Covenant, we, we send our, our warm love greetings to you this morning. And just so thankful for all that the Lord is doing in our midst. Now please turn your attention to God's word and follow along as I read. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the truck, trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the, city, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Hear the word of the Lord. If you still have your Bibles open, the first verse of the sixth chapter tells us how long this happened. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, we do have to begin with the question. I know we're, we're dropping right into a chapter in a book that you probably have not been studying recently. Maybe you have in your own personal devotions. The question is, how did the Israelites get themselves in this situation where the Ark of the Covenant has been captured? How did we, how did we get to this point? And so we, we're going to take a few minutes, moments, Looking back in the first few verses of 1 Samuel, particularly chapter 4, and, um, and look and see what, what has transpired to get them to this place where the ark that was supposed to be in Shiloh is now in captivity. What, what has happened? As you look at the history of Israel, there are some low points. Many years after this event occurs, you probably think of a very low point in the Old Testament being the destruction of the temple in 587 BC and the people of Israel being taken away to Babylon. That, that would be a, a dark point in Israel's history. You look at the scene that's happening before us right now, and this is another dark point. If you recall, the book of Judges is leading us right up to the time of First Samuel. And so we learn a lot by thinking and remembering the themes of the judges. Remember, there was no king for the people of Israel during this time. There was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This was the spiritual pulse of the land of Israel. You have 
Eli, a very prominent character in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, Eli and his household have a tremendous influence and impact on what's going on in the spiritual state of Israel. And so we want to look for a moment at what has caused the glory of God to depart from the people of Israel. First, looking at the sons of Eli. And so we're going to reference some points in chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles open, we are going to talk a bit about or look at the wicked sons of Eli. Chapter 4 really does reveal to us the weakness of a spiritually corrupt and fallen people against the Philistine powers. So first, we need to learn a little bit about Hophni and Phinehas. We're told of their wickedness in detail in chapter 2. Just a quick little recap. When the people of Israel would come to Shiloh and offer their sacrifices, the fat should have been burned off, separated, and it should be unto the Lord. The fat, according to God's word, belongs to the Lord. These wicked priests, these sons of Eli, wanted to have all of the juicy meat with the fat included, and so they partook of that and fattened themselves upon what was to be God's portion. They also turned the entrance of the tabernacle into what some would describe as a brothel, sleeping with women who were serving in that space. If you boil down their life statement, it would go something like this. The Lord's portion to us is not enough. You look at their life and ministry, God had set aside such gracious gifts to those who were serving him in that capacity. And their, their response to all of that is, your portion to us is not enough. We want, we want more. In chapter 3, we hear this as the Lord calls Samuel. The first word that he speaks to Samuel is this, found in verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, remember Samuel's being raised up as a prophet. Behold, I am about to, to do a thing in Israel at which the, the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his, his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So there we get a little snapshot on the ones entrusted to lead the people. And so we see by the, the diagnosis of uh, Eli's two sons that things are not well. Things are not well in the land of Israel. We're also told in chapter 3, that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Next, as chapter 4 begins to unfold, before we get to our passage this morning, we see what some would refer to as the Israelites functioning 
in the way that they respond to the Philistines with a rabbit foot type of theology. And I'll, I'll try to explain that. So first, there was a battle that happens in chapter four. The first engagement with the Philistines, it does not go well. 4,000 Israelites die. They are routed by the Philistines, this seafaring people that are moving in to the land. And after that, their, their world has been shaken and they regroup and the elders of the Israelites ask a question in verse three that is a good question. Why has the Lord allowed the Philistines to, to overtake us, to defeat us? That is a good question. So I want that to just kind of hang for a moment and think back to the Reformation time. 504 years ago in 1517, Martin Luther wrote of some of his concerns that particularly troubled him about the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. One to note was the sale of indulgences. I don't know if, if Cody covered this in Sunday school. If he did, just bear with me. He probably did a much better job. But when we think about indulgences or pardons, these were certificates, papal certificates given to people in exchange for currency. You would pay, you would be given this uh, indulgence, this certificate that would be believed to have the power to reduce your time, the soul that will go into purgatory after you die, that time in purgatory will be lessened. For some, pending how much you give, your certificate could even possibly eliminate that time entirely. As the popular jingle said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. To Luther, this was scandalous. You think about the 95 Thesis, he is responding to all the things that are outside the bounds of what God has revealed in his word. It undercuts the need for true repentance and really, if you think about it, it, it functioned like this kind of rabbit foot theology, kind of a lucky charm. If I've got this in my side pocket, then everything's good. I somehow have attained something of God, maybe his power or favor, and now I can proceed. If I just pay for the pardons, I'll be free. I can do what I want, when I want. And as long as that exchange is happening, that transaction my sins will be forgiven. My time in purgatory will be relieved. It was pure superstition. Nothing to do with the ways of God. Even though it seemed to the people who were hearing this from their religious leaders, a good religious activity, this formula that was presented, if you do this, then you will receive this. This is what they've told us, so this must be how God wants us to interact with him. They were not aware, and praise be to God, raising up men like Martin Luther to proclaim from the rooftops that our God is the living God. Our God is not like a lucky rabbit's foot. God cannot be manipulated by those who profess him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see the Israelites functioning like this. So they've asked this good question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? But they never have 
an interaction with the Lord. They never dealt with their sin before God. They pose a really good question, and then they decide, well, what we need to do, because historically we've seen how the ark has functioned in, in the midst of God's people, we just need to have the ark of the covenant come and be present with us. That way it, if you have the ESV translation in verse four, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies we can somehow have the it that will give us the power needed to overcome those who are coming against us. Never acknowledging the one true God. Never even thinking about what the Ark of the Covenant represented. So just for a moment, think with me. The Ark of the Covenant. In the sanctuary, behind the Holy of Holies, in this special location, it, it, it revealed a few things a couple to think about, maybe three. The first is as you look at the cherubims, the superhuman power that they represented up above on top of the Ark of the Covenant, it pointed to the rule and reign of God. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one that we are to approach in fear and trembling, humbly coming to him, pleading for his help and guidance. Then if they would just remember what was inside the Ten Commandments, inside the ark, his revelation of his perfect law to his people. They were not going by his law. They thought, okay, if we could harness his power and just bring the ark with us, then we can overcome our enemies. And then lastly, the mercy seat, where annually the, the sacrifice was made, the blood of the lamb was sprinkled for for forgiveness, there was a way for reconciliation to be known through what God has provided. And what we see being so thwarted and confused with Eli and his household, and then now the elders of Israel responding, they're not even acknowledging the God who is before them. God doesn't exist for our agendas and our plans. He does not sit off to the side like a waiter that we call upon when we need him to come and provide our needs. We exist for him. Another reason why I'm so thankful for Grace Community Church, all glory to God. When Jane and I arrived in Texas, long story from Eugene, Oregon, here for me to begin my seminary, I would say even at that point, the God-centeredness that should have been present wasn't as present as it needed to be. There was still, from my upbringing and understanding, a, a, a man-centeredness to a lot of my theology. And praise be to God, sitting under the preaching and teaching here, my mind and heart was blown wide open at just how big our God is. How amazing, how holy, how righteous, how just. And when you start to see the glory of God more and more, your sin becomes more and more apparent. And the chasm that is before us between a holy and righteous God and rebels, worms like us, it begins to make grace so, so sweet. It begins to make the gospel real and alive and worth dying for you recognize what Christ has accomplished to make a way for us who are so far from this holy God and, and reconcile us to him through 
the blood of the lamb. When we think of sin, we need to be reminded of how the Israelites are functioning and really sin is always rooted in thinking that we are smarter, that we somehow know better and that our ways are better than God's ways. And what we see happen after the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant into their presence on the battle lines is that God is not there to just be called on or we somehow can manipulate and and absorb or use his great power for our own ends. The Philistines rally the troops because they hear that the God is in the camp of the Israelites, the one who, who led them out of bondage in Egypt. And so with all that they can muster, their, their pagan strength, they muster it that day and they destroy the Israelites. 30,000 foot soldiers killed that day. And really all that transpired that day was God's judgment, God's word coming to fulfillment, coming to fruition. His word does come to pass. On that same day, as he said would happen, Hophni and Phinehas were both killed. That same day, upon hearing that the ark was captured, Eli, if you remember a very heavy set man, falls over off his chair and breaks his neck and dies that very day. The one who had judged Israel for 40 years was dead. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, Remember, the Lord's portion for Phineas was not enough. He was sleeping with other women. He had a wife. The Lord had provided. That wife was pregnant with a son. Upon hearing all of the news that had transpired, she goes into labor early, and it leads ultimately to her death. But before she dies, she names her son Ichabod, meaning where is the glory? And she answers the question. The name, where is the glory? Ichabod, she answers, the glory of the Lord has departed. God's judgment has come to pass. And even in what seems to be the lowest of lows, the darkest of dark times, there are glimmers of God's grace even in the midst of this. I want you to think for a moment, if you've been like me over the last several years, when you have men who have held ministry positions that you have been um, taught by, encouraged by, and you've watched them fall from the ministry, that can be devastating. And it actually reveals a lot of times where we're placing our trust. The fall of church leaders, think with me for a moment, Eli and his household, they were the religious leaders of the time. The fall of church leaders may not actually be a complete tragedy, but a cause of rejoicing. God closing the door of their ministry in judgment and removing the ungodly and raising leaders devoted to him in their place. We actually get to see that begin to unfold in Samuel and then ultimately, as we're working through 1 Samuel in King David. But God is moving. He is pruning. He is removing those who are not honoring him, who are not living for his glory and others' good. 
And that is what seems to be a tragedy on the ground, but there is much grace and mercy and cause of rejoicing in the midst of that. And then as we move into chapter 5, don't worry, we're not going to spend so, so much time there as we did in chapter 4, but I want us to see a couple of things. First, we get to see put on display the humiliation of a false god. A good question to ask when you're looking at chapter 5 is, what can God do about the Philistines? We see that he humbles the false gods before the eyes of the world. And it is quite amazing in the first five verses. The Ark of the Covenant is taken and placed by the Philistines in the house of Dagon. And you can just imagine as the Philistines are rejoicing, shouting from the rooftops what has just transpired this amazing conquering and defeating of the Israelites, they have now placed the Ark of the Covenant in their midst, in the house of their God, Dagon. And what we see happen the first night as they're sleeping, probably some like it's going to be Christmas morn, waking up early and running down to see, oh yes, Dagon is there and that Ark is humbly beside our God. It says they wake up early the next morning and Dagon is, is not standing. He is in a worshiping position. Please don't miss this. He is down on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And I, I know it's hard for us to, to wrap our minds into this visually, but the Ark of the Covenant was not real large. 3.75 feet Lengthwise, I think 2.25 feet wide. It was ornate, it was beautiful, but it wasn't large. And by all accounts, this statue, this idol of Dagon was pretty good size. And so just the size comparison alone, it was probably looking like this is our God who has conquered the God of Israel. And he is face down before the ark of the covenant. Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What's so beautiful about this scene is not only early in the morning do they walk in and see their false God laying face first before the Ark of the Covenant, but this detail is beautiful. They then had to help put their God back in place. They had to go and pick him up and put him back in place. Dagon needed help. Our culture has this same routine happening over and over again. 
They need to keep setting up their false gods again and again when, when they've placed their faith or trust completely in something, maybe it's an ideology and it begins to, to fall flat. They themselves have to go and figure out how to put it back up again. One author by the name of Dr. Joseph Boot defines culture like this. And I just want you to hear this definition and, and mull it over a little bit and see what you think. Culture is the public expression of the worship of the people. So think about our culture right now in America. So thankful for Ike's pastoral prayer. It is, it is like acid burning through whatever fabric was left in America thinking that these ideologies are gonna to lead to something good and it's actually just burning through every layer of good that this, this society has been built upon. When you, when you think about that definition, culture is the public expression of the worship of the people. What we see in our culture and our society very quickly can quickly connect to what people are worshiping the idols that they have put in place. And we need to hear this again and again. The one true God will not share his reign with idols, but ruthlessly cast them down and those who serve them, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter five. On a national level, if we try to make a God of government, then God will send corrupt and incompetent leaders to lead that government. If we make a God out of certain ideologies, critical theory, the sexual revolution, maybe picking and choosing the sanctity of human life, God is able to crumble the fabric of those societies. If we make a God out of the economy, God is able to make the economy plummet. If we use technology and science to violate his laws, then God will make those things a curse that should actually be part of his common grace to his people. God demands that all things be submitted to his sovereign rule. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The Lord intends for all of us as we hear his word this morning to realize that unlike a fallen Dagon, he doesn't need someone to pick him back up. This is really important for us to hear. A lot of us think because it seems that we are being defeated on so many different fronts, that it is up to us in our own strength to, to reveal just how good and amazing our God is. Now, we are called to be faithful. Do not, do not misunderstand or mishear me here. But God is saying, please do not cast me in Dagon's image where I somehow need you to help prop me back up. In a sense, this would be our own paganizing minds when we think that, that one needs to to prop God up because he can't do it himself when we think that he has been knocked down. He is the living God. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote this, when you think that you have defeated him, then he is active. When you think you have him captive, he knocks down your God. He is God who cannot be, be restrained. He is absolute, eternal. He is the living God. And so for this reason, we all must reckon with God before whom we live and move and have our being. It is good to just think about how amazing our God is. He is the living God. The Lord is self-existent, unchangeable, everlasting, omniscient, omnipotent God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. He does not need to be propped up like the false God of the Philistines. Then we see the second day. So they've put him back. They've worked really hard to put him back in his place. They go to sleep that night. And after the second night, the Philistines find Dagon, Dagon with his head and hands cut off. And you just need to understand that this was like a ritual execution for those who have been conquered. This was the, the sign in the, the far Near East or the ancient Near East that a, a foe has been defeated. And so you look at this and they would have known right away what has just happened in the house of Dagon. The head has been decapitated and the hands cut off. The broken image of Dagon actually corresponds with what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in Hannah's prayer or Hannah's song. There's a verse in there, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. There is much being fulfilled in this prayer or song of Hannah. The captured ark, so to speak, is actually conquering those who think they are the victors. This is one of the great reversals that we see happening again and again in the book of 1 Samuel. The apparent defeat is actually not ultimate defeat. And for us believers, brothers and sisters, this, this should install in us much resolve as we may look out and see things so bleak and discouraging and depressing. No one ever defeats the Lord. Even when they think they have. Do you realize that that statement of truth is something that we can hang our whole lives on? No one ever defeats the Lord even when it looks like they have. The last part of this chapter, verses 6 through 12, as you look at what transpires after this second day and their God being beheaded and hands cut off, it's time for the Ark of the Covenant to go to a different location. We're concerned about what has happened. And I want to just reference this last part 
maybe labeling it or titling it God's victory lap. We hear again and again through these verses that the hand of God was heavy. Think about this contrast. Where the false God's hands have been cut off, the one true God's hand is heavy upon the people, afflicting them with terror and tumors. In verse 6, we hear, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Now, many scholars look at what was happening with these tumors and think, you may have heard this before, that that looks like it was like the bubonic plague that was breaking out amongst the people. And where they get that is you've got the seafaring Philistines and you have in chapter six, their response later where they, they make or create five tumors of gold and five uh, gold mice. And it's kind of their, their offering or guilt offering in response. And thinking about the bubonic, sorry, plague and how it was spread through mice or rats um, it's an interesting thought that this is what the Lord had afflicted upon the people. But what I want you to see in this victory lap, they were not seeing it as a victory lap, obviously, but it was so, so amazing to see how from town to town, city to city, the most prominent places in Philistia, in Philistia sorry, uh, God is being moved around and it is his way of going and showing just who he is. It was his way of declaring his conquering of the Philistines. Pretty amazing. One, one author put it so well, the celebration of the arrogant in bringing God to the house of Dagon has become the panic of the broken. God all by himself, this is really important, where are the Israelites? They are Nowhere to be found. God by himself invades and conquers the Philistines, moving city by city, and really along the way, accepting the surrender of each of the, the cities of, uh, of the Philistines like one would do as a conquering king. He is moving through, conquering each place. And so what we see in chapter 5, if you're just kind of running through the passage, it looks like defeat, but this defeat leads to ultimate victory. And so in this chapter of 1 Samuel, the defeat of the Israelites at the end of chapter 4, which seems to represent the defeat of God, actually proves to be the means of victory. The Ark of God is taken to the temple of Dagon as a trophy that they are displaying and a tribute to their God's superiority. But as we saw in the mornings, Dagon first falls face down, then loses his head, and the defeat of God seemingly leads to the victory over the Philistines. Now, I, in closing, I want to 
I want to connect some dots here. We heard earlier on the, the wife of Phineas naming her son Ichabod and then responding, the glory of God has departed. The glory has departed. That, that phrase literally could be translated, the glory has gone into exile. The glory has gone into exile. Psalm 78 actually picks up on this particular situation, this event. It recalls this story and describes the ark of God going into captivity, going into exile. Now, keep that in mind and think with me for a moment on this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 64 through 68. It's, it's summed up like this. The ultimate curse of covenant unfaithfulness is exile. What the people deserve when they are unfaithful to God's covenant is exile. That is what they deserve. But in our story, who is it that is exiled? It's God. This is huge as we start thinking about this being a shadow and the Lord Jesus and what he has accomplished on the cross being the substance. His people deserve the judgment of exile, but instead it was God himself who is exiled. He is the one who bears their judgment. And what seems to be a defeat ends up actually turning into victory. When you think about the cross, this is where what was shadow-like in this story of 1 Samuel 5 becomes substance as we look to the cross, the cross being the reality of what seems to be defeat actually becoming victory. At the cross, God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, experienced judgment that he did not deserve. He experienced the judgment of exile. He was handed over to the nations, the Romans. He was brought outside the camp. He did not deserve the punishment we did. Yet he was forsaken by God on the cross. He took the judgment of exile on himself Think about the exile being put out so that we who do not deserve it may be welcomed in through what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So what seemed to be defeat, think for a moment with me, through Jesus of Nazareth betrayed, tried, and condemned. Through that seeming defeat, Christ's death, conquering the power or defeating the power of Satan, it was broken. And through his resurrection, death was conquered and sin defeated. Jesus was raised victorious. If you just think for a moment, if, you, if you're looking through the gospels and it's leading up to Calvary's cross, the betrayal of his closest companions, the denial of Peter, Judas betraying him and all that transpired leading up to Calvary, it would look as if he is losing, that this was ultimate defeat. And yet we in Christ 
spend our days rejoicing because it actually led to ultimate victory. And this morning, I want us to actually join with Hannah in another verse that she said in chapter 2. The Lord raises the poor from the dust, verse 8, and makes them inherit a throne of honor. Because of what Christ endured on the cross, we are raised up with him. This is the great reversal. Calvary's cross, seeming defeat, was turned to resounding victory. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you have specially revealed your revelation in the word of God. It is God-breathed. And as we have heard from your word this morning, in scriptures read and songs proclaimed in your word in 1 Samuel, we pray that we would not respond like the Philistines. All they wanted to do was remove you from their midst. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, there's a question asked, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Father, may we not respond like the Israelites in chapter 4, where we don't actually deal with our sins before you, but just try to manipulate or use you for our own end. Father, may this be the day where we get a glimpse of your glory, your holiness, your righteousness, and look to the Lord Jesus. Turn to the one who has made a way for us to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. May we, re we respond this morning in repentance and faith. And Father, closing with a prayer from Martin Luther, dear God, let your word shine in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Make it so bright and warm that we always find our comfort and joy in it. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.